Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. According to contemporary John Haywood, no one knew better the art of commanding men. Even at 17, her tutor said the constitution of her mind is exempt from female weakness, and she is endued with the masculine power of application. No apprehension quicker, no memory more retentive. With the nation perhaps more divided by religion than at any point in English history, the young queen would require every ounce of skill, of nous, of guile afforded to her. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth was born at Greenwich Palace on the 7th of September 1533. She was the second child of Henry VIII in wedlock to survive infancy, and his second wife, Anne Boleyn. At birth, she was heir presumptive to the English throne. Her elder sister Mary had lost her position when Henry's marriage to Mary's mother, Catherine of Aragon, was annulled. Elizabeth's godfather was a chief architect of the annulment and driver of the Reformation that had allowed Elizabeth to replace her sister, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. Astrologers had told Henry that Anne would safely bear a son. On that day, lavish celebratory tournaments were set. A silver cradle beset with jewels was crafted. Letters written were ready to be sent to the nation's lords and nobles. Bells rang out and bonfires were lit. But it was the Catholic adversaries, the ones stripped of their religion and their dignity, who would celebrate the hardest. For Anne, the concubine, had not given Henry what he wanted, a male heir. The tournaments were cancelled, the letters amended, and while the christening proved to be a spectacular event, with citizens, esquires, chaplains, aldermen, bishops and councillors in procession, Henry did not attend. After the christening, Elizabeth was taken to Hatfield House. Mary, 17 years her senior, was told of her new role, set out by her stepmother, Anne Boleyn. She would be her baby sister's lady-in-waiting. It was an act to deliberately humiliate. Elizabeth, like her siblings, was precocious. She was taught French, Dutch, Italian and Spanish, and could also write in Latin. Unusually, later, she learned Cornish, Welsh, Irish and Scots. Reportedly so fluently, it was as though it were her native tongue. She was soon becoming one of the most educated women of her generation. Her first few years were blessed and comfortable. However, her life would become traumatic over a short period of time, similar to her half-sister. Following multiple miscarriages and accusations of adultery, Henry ordered the execution of his wife, Anne Boleyn. She was beheaded in May 1536. Elizabeth, at just two and a half years old, was without a mother, leaving an indifferent, callous father. Losing her mother at such a young age and in such fashion wasn't the end of her trauma. She would now be frozen out just like her half-sister. She was declared illegal 
and deprived of their place in the line of succession. Just 11 days after Anne Boleyn's execution, Henry married his third wife, Jane Seymour. Mary grew close to Jane and was able to persuade her to submit to her father, accepting him as supreme head of the church in England and accepting the invalidity of her parents' marriage and therefore her illegitimacy. She became Henry's favourite daughter. The three-year-old Elizabeth had been further sidelined. The following year, Jane was able to do what Henry's previous wives had failed to do repeatedly, sire a son. Edward was born on the 12th of October, 1537, the new heir to the English throne. As Elizabeth grew into a teenager, her relationship with her father would begin to improve, as did Mary's. In 1544, the Succession Act officially restored Mary and Elizabeth to the line of succession, behind Edward. The sisters were now fully acknowledged once more. Elizabeth developed a close relationship with Henry's sixth wife, Catherine Parr. At the age of 12, she translated her stepmother's Protestant work, Prayers and Meditations, into three languages and gifted it to her father for New Year's. Yet her relationship with her father would never become close. He was absent. She would write to him, pleading with him, to spend more time with her. He who hath deprived me of a whole year of your most illustrious presence. On the 28th of January, 1547, Henry VIII died, and was succeeded by his nine-year-old son, Edward VI. After Henry's death, Catherine Parr married Thomas Seymour. The teenage Elizabeth would move into their household. Elizabeth's relationship with Thomas Seymour would prove to be one of the most significant and perhaps most damaging of her life. The 39-year-old Seymour would visit Elizabeth's bedchamber, bare-legged in his slippers, <laughs> to engage in romps and horseplay. <laughs> While sources tell us that Elizabeth's maids would try to shield Seymour from Elizabeth's room, she was also known to blush when his name was mentioned. Either way, when Catherine Parr began to realise how close the pair had become, she sent the then 15-year-old Elizabeth away. Soon after Catherine Parr died, Seymour, ever ambitious and opportunistic, sought to renew his relationship with Elizabeth and intended on marrying her. When Elizabeth was encouraged to comfort Seymour in his sorrow, she wisely refused. Seymour then moved his attention onto the king. This time he went too far, when he tried to kidnap and coerce the king. He was condemned to death by Edward's Lord Protector, Edward Seymour, Thomas's brother, and was beheaded in 1549. The perhaps abusive relationship between Elizabeth and Thomas Seymour could have had profound effects on Elizabeth's future relationships. By early 1553, 15-year-old Edward VI was dying. Edward was desperate to prevent the Catholic Mary from ascending the throne. He was an ardent Protestant who had accelerated the Reformation far beyond the inclinations of Henry VIII. With the help of John Dudley, Lord President of the Council, they produced a device reversing the Succession Act of 1544. It allowed Jane, Edward's Protestant cousin, to ascend the throne instead of Mary. This also removed Elizabeth from the line. 
Although Elizabeth was a Protestant, it made sense for both sisters to be removed. There was also the fear that the first Queen Regnant of England would be easily influenced by a foreign husband and potential king, therefore putting the sovereignty of the kingdom at risk. Jane was a fervent Protestant and recently married, conveniently, to John Dudley's son, Guildford. In his final days, Edward called for his sisters to visit him. Elizabeth was halfway to her brother before being warned of a trap. On the 6th of July, 1553, Edward died. On the 10th of July, a reluctant, terrified Lady Jane Grey, who was also 15, was proclaimed Queen with the backing of the entire council. Yet, such an orchestrated power-grabbing succession would not be so easy. The population rallied behind Mary, and as the councillors slowly changed camps, her victory became inevitable. Elizabeth shrewdly joined her sister. She had no choice but to show loyalty. Any hesitance would bring attention to her as a potential claimant. On the outskirts of London, Mary and Elizabeth met. She knelt, and they embraced. They then rode into the capital. Jane was overthrown after just nine days. Mary became the first anointed Queen Regnant of England. Elizabeth was ever-present, accompanying the Queen at all major events, often walking hand in hand, yet there was a simmering tension. Mary said she could never set aside her loathing for the concubine's daughter. Soon after Mary's accession, Elizabeth was approached by Thomas Wyatt. He planned a revolt in response to Mary's engagement to Philip, the heir to the throne of Spain, Europe's Catholic powerhouse. The revolt failed. Lady Jane Grey, who had been spared from execution, would not be spared now, though she was not involved. On the day Jane was beheaded, Elizabeth was making her way to London. She had been summoned by the Queen. As she hit the streets, she drew back the curtains of her carriage to reveal her weak state, to enlist the sympathy of the citizens. Elizabeth pleaded her innocence. Luckily, she was exonerated by Wyatt himself as he stood condemned on the block. While Mary's new husband wanted Elizabeth executed, claiming the throne would never be safe with a Protestant claimant, Mary showed mercy and placed her under house arrest. When she was set free, she grew more and more frightened of Mary. While Edward had sought to suppress Catholicism and prevent Mary from going to Mass, Mary would do the same and stamp out Protestantism. While Edward and Mary were fervent and unwavering, Elizabeth was able to compromise on religious matters. She even made a show of converting to Catholicism, though Mary was unconvinced. By 1555, 40-year-old Mary was still childless. After a phantom pregnancy in April of that year, it was becoming increasingly likely that Elizabeth would ascend the throne. Philip began to attempt to cultivate the princess. By 1558, after another phantom pregnancy, Mary was fading. Philip, keen to smooth relations with the future queen, sent the Spanish ambassador to speak to her. He had hoped she would be malleable, but what he found was a vain and clever woman. She was not about to forget how she had been treated. 
when the ambassador claimed it had been Philip who had smoothed the way for transition, Elizabeth declared it was the people who had put her in her present position, and she would not acknowledge that Philip had any part of it. The King of Spain had his answer. Elizabeth, meanwhile, was already assembling her council. William Cecil would become her principal secretary of state, and Robert Dudley, the head of her new privy council. On the 17th of November 1558, Mary I died at the age of 42. Parliament was dissolved, the ports were closed, and the privy councillors rode to Hatfield House to find Elizabeth sat under an oak tree, reading from her Greek Bible. When she was informed, she proclaimed, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous to see. The Elizabethan Era had begun. Elizabeth I ascended the throne at the age of 25. Her coronation on the 15th of January 1559 was wholeheartedly greeted by orations and pageants with a strong Protestant flavour. Spectators were wonderfully ravished by a cacophony of fifes, organs, trumpets, drums and bells. She would become remarkably adept at ruling. She fit the part. She was said to be amiably composed. Every motion of her seemed to bear majesty. As a princess, she wore the traditionally conservative garb of a Protestant maiden. When she became queen, she gradually began dressing flamboyantly, wearing fine clothes, and becoming growingly concerned about her aged appearance into her forties and beyond. According to Rosalind Marshall, she was very conscious of every one of her ambitious statesmen that sought to control her, and deliberately cultivated her natural imperiousness, her changeability, and her penchant for uttering disconcerting remarks. It was all necessary. She had inherited a kingdom divided and fearful of further religious persecution. One of those was a Bishop of Winchester, who had eulogised at Mary's funeral. I praise the dead more than the living, but we must obey the new queen, since a living dog is better than a dead lion. He was placed under house arrest. Elizabeth had far more to be concerned about than one diatribe from the pulpit. She was the Protestant head of an establishment still packed with their sister's Catholic appointees. The ardent fanaticism of her siblings and predecessors that formed a barrier to genuine efforts to heal the wounds of religious turmoil would not necessarily be repeated in the reign of Elizabeth. Though she was Protestant, she was also a pragmatist. The perennial perceived threat of a foreign Catholic crusade meant Elizabeth was willing to appease England's Catholics by refusing to adhere to Puritan demands of far-reaching reform. Puritans were extreme Protestants, determined to root out all remnants of Catholicism. The Elizabethan religious settlement was an attempt to bring the English Reformation to a conclusion and heal religious divisions. The 1558 Act of Supremacy re-established the Church of England's independence from Rome. As a compromise to opposition, Elizabeth was named Governor of the Church, not the Head. 
1559 Act reintroduced the Book of Common Prayer from Edward's reign. In return, permission was given to Catholics to use traditional priestly vestments and even greater latitude concerning the belief of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, known as transubstantiation. The settlements, which required deep compromises, still failed as Puritans continued to challenge the Catholic minority, who were refusing to attend Anglican services. Decades of continual religious upheaval was unlikely to be resolved with the stroke of a pen. Upon Elizabeth's succession, the council was almost immediately concerned with another matter. Echoes of Edward's device and the fear of an English queen becoming entangled and manipulated by a foreign king. The issue was paramount. One figure from Elizabeth's recent past would be one of the first to attempt to woo the queen. Philip, though reluctant due to his failure to secure real power as King of England, agreed to graciously offer his hand in marriage to the sister of his widow. He had his terms. Elizabeth would have to become Roman Catholic. In his words, it will be evident and manifest that I am serving the Lord in marrying her, and that she has been converted by my act. Elizabeth rejected what was probably the most undesirable of many marriage proposals. Philip was privately relieved. However, a Spanish diplomat who received a rejection and had expected humble gratitude launched into a speech about the virtues of virginity and boldly threatened the Queen. He made references to the French perhaps placing their own candidate on the English throne. It touched a nerve and the Queen exploded in fury. Why would the Queen need worry about England's old enemy? On the day of Elizabeth's succession, Henry II, King of France, proclaimed Elizabeth to be a bastard. And in fact, it was his own daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was the true queen. The Queen of Scots was Elizabeth's cousin. She was descended from Henry VIII's elder sister, Margaret Tudor, who had married James IV of Scotland. Older than Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's younger sister, through whom fellow cousin Lady Jane Grey became a claimant. Margaret's line had been bypassed by Edward's device, due to their Catholic faith. Now Mary, Queen of Scots, was married to Henry II's son, Francois. France would be able to put their weight behind this new Catholic claimant. Elizabeth had always been incredibly sensitive about her own legitimacy. And in the opinion of many Catholics, Due to the circumstances of Henry VIII's divorce from Catherine of Aragon, the break from Rome, and subsequent marriage to Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth was far from legitimate. The following year, in 1559, Henry II, King of France, was stabbed in the eye in a jousting accident. Leading to a slow, painful death. His son, 15-year-old Francois, became King of France, and Mary became not only Queen of Scotland, but now also Queen of France. Yet both had now declared themselves King and Queen of England as well. Elizabeth had a potent threat across the Channel. William Cecil implored a characteristically hesitant Elizabeth to quickly send a fleet to cut off France from Scotland. 
a country growing sympathetic to Protestantism, despite their queen. After Scotland was cut off, the English would be able to unite with their northern neighbour against a Catholic crusade. This resulted in the Treaty of Edinburgh in 1560. England and France would be required to withdraw forces from Scotland and leave the religious question, not to their queen, but to the Scottish Parliament. France would acknowledge Elizabeth as queen and renounce Mary as a claimant. Later the same year, the Scottish Parliament voted to impose the Reformation. It was a huge victory for Elizabeth and a masterclass in diplomacy from Cecil, who would continue to be instrumental at court. Mary had lost the religious battle in her own country, and in December 1560, she lost her husband. 15-year-old Francois died after an inner infection spread to his brain. He would be succeeded by his 10-year-old brother. Mary had now lost her crown in France, and had little option but to return to her home country in August 1561. She was defeated, but she would yet provoke many more sleepless nights for the Queen of England. Once the Treaty of Edinburgh was signed, the Council would press further on the issue of marriage. Elizabeth was unimpressed with the potential suitors, but there was one man with whom Elizabeth was unquestionably besotted. Robert Dudley, the head of a Privy Council, one of Elizabeth's most trusted advisers. His stature was remarkable, considering he was the son of John Dudley, the man who had orchestrated the failed succession of Lady Jane Grey, and the grandson of Edmund Dudley, one of Henry VII's despised tax collectors. Both men had been executed for treason, yet Robert was as close as anyone to the Queen. He was described as the traitor's son, a gypsy with a dark, alluring glance, and roguishly handsome. The two reportedly met while both imprisoned by Mary and became inseparable. He was put in charge of organising state ceremonies and was very good at it. He was a reporter of dastardly schemes. For this, Elizabeth nicknamed him Her Eyes. Their relationship stretched beyond government business. Dudley would entertain her with anecdotes when she was bound by endless paperwork. <laughs> we can never know how close her relationship was, but it drew ire and jealousy. Rumours began to spread of a secret union. Such rumours reached the public quickly. They were febrile and not without danger. A 68-year-old widow from Essex was arrested for asserting that Elizabeth was indeed pregnant with Dudley's child. Members of the Privy Council were understandably adamantly opposed to such a union. But even if they weren't, there was a much bigger obstacle to such a marriage. Dudley was already married. His wife Amy lived away from the capital. Under instruction from the Queen, she was to be nowhere near court. Amy had been ailing for some time. Philip II was told by his ambassador that it was clear to him the Queen was waiting for her to die in order to marry her man. On the 8th of September 1560, Amy sent her servants out for the day at a local fair. She would remain at home. Later that day, when they returned, they found their master at the bottom of the stairs, cold with a broken neck. There were no witnesses, and rumours spread frantically of foul play. 
or perhaps suicide. Both causes of death would surely leave her estranged husband Robert Dudley responsible. For those enemies at court, it was in their best interest to fuel the fire. It could easily have been an accident, with unfortunate timing. When Elizabeth found out, she ordered Dudley to leave court while the suspicious death was investigated. The verdict of the inquest was accidental death. Dudley was exonerated, but any chance of a union between the pair was lost. It would have been political dynamite. She would have to look elsewhere, if in fact she had ever wanted to marry Robert Dudley. In the early years of Elizabeth's reign, offers of marriage came from most directions. The Queen was often amused by the descriptions of such gallant men sent over in the hope of being the one to whom she became besotted. When in 1562, Elizabeth, ravaged by smallpox, was said to be all but gone, her council were frantic about the prospect of being left with a vacant throne and no heir. William Cecil was in a position to be able to be direct with the Queen upon her recovery. She was obdurate, holding her coronation ring up high and proclaimed, I am already bound unto a husband, which is the Kingdom of England. When Parliament openly discussed her lack of husband, she said, It is like the feet directing the head. There were some potential suitors. Although she remained close to Dudley, by 1564 she had a new favourite. Christopher Hatton drew the attention of the Queen during a play. She said, He is a mere vegetable of the court that springs up at night. He would send love letters to the Queen. Your heart is full of rare and loyal faith. The writings of your hand do raise me a joy unspeakable. He became a rival of Robert Dudley. She would on occasion leave hints of her intentions to marry in the presence of Cecil, but it is possible she was merely playing politics. Perhaps a most far-fetched proposal came from none other than Ivan the Terrible, the first Tsar of Russia. In a letter that Elizabeth called the rudest she had ever received, he referred to her as an old maid. Later, in the 1570s, she was linked heavily with the Duke of Alençon, a man she called her frog. She even accepted his proposal, the only proposal she ever did accept, before quickly reversing her decision. By the 1580s, she was approaching 50, and her time was up. After the perceived scandal surrounding Robert Dudley, Elizabeth would have other issues to contend with, as an old rival returned home. Mary, Queen of Scots, now a widow, was returning to her country of birth, her kingdom, a country in which her faith was no longer recognised, Scotland. Due to her stature as head of state, she was able to reach a compromise of practising her own faith without imposing it upon her subjects. With regards to England, Mary changed tact. She threatened to renounce the Treaty of Edinburgh if Elizabeth did not immediately name her heir to the English throne. To shore up her claim, Mary married Lord Darnley, Henry Stuart, a cousin and fellow grandchild of Margaret Tudor, in February 1565. This was bad news for Elizabeth, as the couple now had a double claim to her throne. Darnley was described as brainless, 
an ugly little man who did not treat Mary with courtesy. Nevertheless, Mary became pregnant. Darnley soon began to cause trouble. He grew jealous of Mary's chief political adviser, David Rizzio, a man equally brimming with his own self-importance. When rumours spread that Rizzio was a biological father of Mary's unborn child, Darnley hatched a plan. In March 1566, while Mary was having dinner with Rizzio, Darnley marched in and put his arm around his wife. Suddenly, one of Darnley's henchmen entered the room in full armour. A terrified Rizzio was aware of what was about to happen and darted behind Mary, clinging to her pleats of her gown. <laughs> the henchman waved a pistol at Mary's attendees as a warning to stay back. It was then pointed at Mary's womb. Several more henchmen then stormed the room and using Darnley's own dagger, stabbed Rizzio 56 times. He was hurled down the main staircase, dragged to the porter's lodge, and stripped of his fine clothes. Darnley had eliminated his rival in the most brutal way imaginable. When Mary calmed down, she turned to her attendees. No more tears now. I will think upon my revenge. The following month in April, Mary gave birth to a boy called James. The couple would then live apart. A reconciliation seemed to be apparent when Mary began attending to Darnley when he became ill. But on the morning of the 10th of February 1567, all that changed when an explosion devastated his house. Darnley was dead. Yet he was dead in the garden. No visible marks were found on his body. Perhaps he was smothered. It was a great whodunit of history. Just two months later, Mary was apparently abducted by the prime suspect of Darnley's murder, Lord Bothwell. The rumour mill began to turn more rapidly, with the pair being the obvious suspects. Yet Elizabeth herself sent Mary a letter insisting that she did not harbour such a thought. The pair were married in May. This uncertainty and later scandal were too much for the Scottish Parliament, and they had reached the end of their tether. Twenty-six peers raised an army against the couple and captured them in June. They gave Mary several unappealing options, either abdicate and go into exile, or face a murder trial and possibly execution. She agreed to abdicate and made way for her son. One-year-old James became King of Scotland. Mary, however, was not one to go quietly. In May 1568, she escaped, raised an army of 6,000 to reclaim her crown. She lost. With few options and few troops, she needed military aid. She went to perhaps the most unlikely place, England. She was quickly confined at Carlisle Castle. Elizabeth now had a huge dilemma what would she do with Mary? She could send her to France to become a pawn. This was risky. She could give her aid against the Scots, but this would destroy a fragile alliance. 
she could send her to Scotland to face certain execution, but this would risk igniting Catholic detractors in her own country. She ultimately had no choice but to keep her in honourable confinement and wait. But having a rival Catholic claimant in the country, just waiting to be released and proclaimed Queen of England, did not sit well with the council or with the Queen. It did not take long for Catholic opportunists to plan exactly that. Luckily, Elizabeth had a sophisticated spy network full of loyal experts. They would be vital. In 1569, an Italian banker turned agent called Roberto Ridolfi raised money on a mission from the Pope to topple Elizabeth and replace her with Mary. The plot was ill-conceived and foiled. It also revealed a turncoat, the Duke of Norfolk, a one-time prospective husband. His death warrant was repeatedly placed on the desk of Elizabeth, yet she refused to sign it. In May 1572, Parliament had to assemble specifically to pressure the Queen into signing. She yielded, and Norfolk was executed. It was the first death warrant signed by Elizabeth in her 14 years as Queen, a record she had been proud of. By 1570, threats to Elizabeth's rule suddenly became more dangerous when she was excommunicated by Pope Pius V. Until this moment, she had been protected by none other than Philip, her former brother-in-law and King of Spain. The Pope had effectively legalised her deposition. He had given a mandate to every Catholic in Europe to topple her. Her, whom he called both servant of wickedness, who had reduced England to ruinous condition. Every future plot would have the backing of Rome. Pressure grew on Elizabeth to execute Mary. A quick and easy way to remove a figurehead of Catholic revolt. In 1583, the Throckmorton plot was discovered by Elizabeth's spymaster, Francis Walsingham, a plot with the same objective. After this, the bond of association was signed. Any person who was involved in a plot or was set to benefit from such arrangements would be executed. This would surely indict Mary. Yet Elizabeth continued to refuse to condemn her cousin. Upon pressure, Elizabeth said, I am not so vivid in judgment as not to see my own peril, nor yet so ignorant as not to know where it's in nature a foolish cause to cherish a cause to cut my own throat. If Elizabeth orders the execution of Mary, an anointed monarch, why couldn't someone do it to her? Elizabeth was adamant. But there was one plot she could scarcely ignore. Mary began sending coded messages in waterproof pouches hidden in beer casks. These were intercepted by Walsingham's crypto-analysts. The Babington plot of 1586 directly implicated Mary. The following year, Elizabeth finally signed her cousin's death warrant. A cousin she had never met. After 18 years in confinement, Mary was led out to the block at Fotheringay Castle and beheaded. Elizabeth was racked with guilt. She had eliminated the figurehead of a Catholic usurpation, but had further fueled the fire of resentment. 
By the 1580s, against her better judgment, hardline Protestants had persuaded Elizabeth to sanction more vigorous policies against Catholic recusants. Non-attendance fines were £260, or if you couldn't pay, two-thirds of your property. Catholic priests were being executed, and the remaining recusants took to hiding in priest holes. By the late 80s, the nation looked a mirror image of her sister's divided kingdom. Hardline Protestants also encouraged more aggressive policy abroad. With the Netherlands under the control of Catholic Spain, Elizabeth had been pleaded with to provide aid against their suppressors. She had always refused or sent paltry assistance. After the assassination of their leader, William of Orange, in 1584, Elizabeth signed the Treaty of Nonsuch, agreeing to provide more military support. The King of Spain, Philip, saw this as an act of war. The 1587 execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, was the final straw. In order to prevent England from aiding the Dutch, and to prevent the continual raiding of Spanish ships in the Caribbean by English privateers, Philip planned an invasion. Raiding was a huge problem for Philip and for Spain. In fact, Elizabeth's rather large share of Francis Drake's stolen gold surpassed the Crown's income for an entire year. In 1587, the English knew an invasion was coming. Francis Drake led a campaign, given the derisive name Singeing the King of Spain's Beard, to target the assembling forces in the Bay of Cadiz, destroying more than a hundred ships and delaying the invasion by a year. It allowed the English to prepare with the aid of Walsingham's spy network. Beacons were built along the English coast. When one lit, the next one would, leading all the way to London. In July 1588, they were lit. According to legend, when Drake was informed of the lit beacons, he decided to continue his game of bowls before mustering his fleet. According to Juan Bentivolo, an Italian who saw the Spanish Armada leave for England, you could hardly see the sea. The Spanish fleet was stretched out in the form of a half moon, with an immense distance between its extremities. The masts and rigging, the towering sterns and prows, which in height and number were so great that they dominated the whole naval concourse. It seemed almost that the waves groaned under its weight, and the winds were made to obey it. When the Great Armada left, Philip prayed each day for four hours for its safe and glorious return. 
150 ships and over 15,000 men had left Lisbon and were headed to Flanders to rendezvous with the Duke of Parma and his 30,000 troops. The plan was to land their invasion force on the English coast, ferment Catholic rebellion and kill the Queen. Their commander was the Duke of Medina Sidonia. He was incredibly reluctant to go, yet Philip would hear none of it. He even claimed he couldn't go because he got seasick. But when a king commands you, you obey. He roused his troops with an impassioned speech. Blessed and innocent Mary, Queen of Scots, who still fresh from her sacrifice, bears copious and abundant witness to the cruelty and impiety of this Elizabeth and directs her shafts against her. As soon as the Armada reached the channel, things began to go wrong. They ignored an opportunity to land in England upon arrival, preferring to wait for reinforcements. But the Duke of Parma was not ready. There was not even a deep port for them to harbour, and the Armada was forced to anchor outside of Calais. Tudor historian William Camden described the Armada as being built high like towers and castles, rallied into the form of a crescent, whose horns were at least seven miles distant. Against the giant galleons, the English knew they would have to rely on speed, and not get too close. When in their crescent moon formation, the English had done little damage, pursuing them to Calais. In fact, they only sank one ship. It transpired that the ship sank due to a Spanish gunner setting fire to his own vessel. The Armada was not a force that would win at sea, but was built for a land invasion. If they kept their formation, they were untouchable. Francis Drake knew this. After dark, Drake sent eight fireships into the anchored armada. Though the Spanish had been warned it was coming, the scale of the fire attack shocked the men, and they panicked. The Duke ordered the captains to stay put and not break their formation. Only a couple of the 130 captains obeyed the order. They cut their lines and set sail. Not even the threat of hanging dissuaded the captains from fleeing the fire. As the fireships floated harmlessly towards the coast, the English pursued the now vulnerable Spanish ships, blasting them with cannonballs while keeping their distance. They were picked off one by one. The remaining armada desperately headed towards Scotland. Their fortunes did not change. They were hit with an unusually heavy storm and washed up violently on the rocks of the Irish coast, not able to anchor after cutting their lines. 2,000 bodies alone were washed up at Sligo Bay. One Irishman boasted that he had dispatched 80 Spaniards with his axe. Out of the 30,000 troops of the Armada, only 10,000 returned. Elizabeth was triumphant, claiming God blew, and they were scattered. On the 8th of August, she gave perhaps her most famous speech to troops at Tilbury. I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too. 
And think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which rather than any dishonour shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. Yet her refusal to pay and supply her tired and diseased victors left a bitter taste in the mouths of their heroic commanders. It would grieve any man's heart to see them that have served so valiantly to die so miserably. The victory of the Spanish Armada has been hailed as one of England's greatest victories. Despite their heavy losses, it was a defeat that failed to sink Spain. In fact, an attempt the following year to capitalise on the weakness of the Spanish ended it utter failure with over 15,000 English dead off the coast of Galicia and Francis Drake retreating with his tail between his legs. It signalled a revival of Spanish naval power. Into the 1590s, Elizabeth began to look elsewhere as nationalism began to grow in Ireland, a place where the Reformation was failing to take hold. In August 1598, Hugh O'Neill destroyed an English army at the Battle of Yellow Ford. With 900 dead, it was England's heaviest defeat in Ireland. Elizabeth needed a trusted commander to quell the revolt and bring Ireland back under control. She chose Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, the stepson of Robert Dudley. He was a hugely erratic figure known for his violent temper and for his lack of subtlety and wisdom. He had secured huge acclaim from the public after looting Cadiz and sharing the wealth with the citizens. The Queen was furious as he had failed to save any for her. Elizabeth chose Devereux probably due to his popularity, but also because she had a soft spot for him. He was incredibly unsuited for the job. When he arrived with his army in Ireland, he refused to pursue the rebels without more troops. Even when the Queen sent a message telling Devereux that the army was costing her a thousand pounds a day, he didn't budge. Out of the 16,000 men, only 4,000 were fighting fit due to disease by the time he finally relented. The armies met at the River Lagan. Devereux realised he was in trouble so entered into secret negotiations. It later emerged that Devereux had offered the Irish home rule without any authority to do so. As rumours spread of Devereux's treachery, he left his post without permission with 200 of his men and headed straight to London. Before even going home to change his muddied clothes, he went straight to the palace. Again without permission, he entered the Queen's bedchamber. He met the Queen in a nightgown, wigless and without her makeup. The 65-year-old allowed only her most trusted servants to see her in her fragile state. Yet she remained calm as the insolent Devereux began to rant and rave. Devereux was arrested. After being placed under house arrest, he tried to spark a rebellion in London. He severely overestimated what was now waning popularity. When he was finally brought to the block, he labelled himself as the greatest, the most vilest, the most unthankful traitor that had ever been 
in the land. His sins were more in number than the hairs of his head. Upon hearing the news of his execution, Elizabeth, playing the virginals, gave but a brief pause before continuing. This was not an execution that would keep the ageing queen up at night. The Elizabethan era was littered with legendary national figures, including explorers, the most famous of which was Walter Raleigh. He had served the Queen with distinction in Ireland. Now he was keen to exploit the Americas, not just by looting Spanish gold, but by establishing an English colony. He had dispatched scouts to North America and brought back two natives, potatoes, thought of as an exotic aphrodisiac, and tobacco. While tobacco had been in England previously, it would now become hugely popular with royal recognition. The herb, purgeth superfluous phlegm, and other gross humours, and openeth all the pores and passages of the body. He said the land from which this remarkable plant grew ought to be named after the Queen. Henceforth, it was known as Virginia. In 1584, he helped create a colony on Roanoke Island. He sent 118 men, women and children, electing John White as the first governor of Virginia. Virginia Dare became the first English child born in the New World. Relations with the natives were fractious at times. By 1587, Elizabeth was calling for every available vessel to England for the impending armada. White left the colony desperate for supplies. By the time he returned to the island, three years later, the colony had vanished. The only remaining clue as to their whereabouts was the word Croatoan, the name of a nearby island and tribe that was etched into a wooden post. The colony may have relocated, but despite centuries of investigation and genetic analysis, the fate of the colonists remains a mystery. Other exotic food began to make its way to English shores, including pumpkins, turkeys and chilli peppers. Other new land was being discovered by Europeans. William Adams became the first Englishman to reach Japan in 1600, when he joined a Dutch expedition. He was treated with high regard due to his maritime knowledge. He became one of the very few Western samurai and raised a family. Innovations in Elizabethan England included the Flushing Lavatory, bottled beer, and the National Lottery. The prize was £5,000 and immunity from prosecution, but the price of a ticket was beyond the reach of most. By 1600, the Queen was approaching 70. She was known to cover her aged appearance. She used lipstick made from beeswax, wore big wigs, and applied a heavy makeup made from vinegar and a lethal lead compound. Her closest confidants were dying. In 1581, Dudley died. After the Queen herself died, a letter penned by Dudley was found in her top drawer. With Elizabeth's writing, it was labelled his letter. Walsingham died in 1590 and Drake in 1596. Another man close to her heart was William Cecil, a man who had served the Queen 
for more than 40 years. Though Cecil was 77, he was a man Elizabeth thought too important to allow to retire. Even in his final months, Elizabeth would nurse Cecil personally. Finally, he died in 1598. According to the Venetian ambassador, she had withdrawn into herself. She was one to live so gaily, especially in these last years. Elizabeth herself said she wasn't sick, she felt no pain, yet she pined away. By 1602, she was ill. She refused to see any doctors and wouldn't go to bed. She said, if you saw the things I saw when I am in bed, you would not persuade me to go there. Instead, she would spend most days propped up on a pile of cushions. The Queen was fading. There was only one successor. Though Elizabeth had continually refused to name him through fear of abandonment, James VI of Scotland was a worthy ruler. He was a good age of 36, with an impeccable bloodline as a great-grandson of Henry VII. William Cecil's son, Robert, another of the Queen's confidants, had been corresponding secretly with him. Finally, he got what he perceived as permission from the dying Queen, and stationed horses ten miles apart to reach Scotland without delay, in preparation for the Queen's imminent death. In February 1603, the Queen's lady-in-waiting, her cousin, died after 44 years of service. This broke Elizabeth's heart. Just a month later, on the 24th of March, Elizabeth too died at the age of 69. She was interred next to her sister Mary at Westminster Abbey. In 1559, an irate Elizabeth berated Parliament over their insistence that she marry. If when I have expired my last breath, this may be inscribed upon my tomb. Here lies interred Elizabeth, a virgin pure, until her death. Perhaps she was wise not to be drawn into the pressures of marital power struggle, like her sister Mary. Perhaps the effect of her monstrous father murdering his wives, including her own mother, had irreversible trauma or even the effect of the advances of Thomas Seymour led to a lasting sense of insecurity. Perhaps she realised the power she had would only remain if she maintained her virginity. We will never know. The Tudor dynasty was over. A logical successor had been chosen. It was not only a peaceful succession of monarchs, but a peaceful succession of dynasties. She oversaw the golden age of poetry, music and literature, with the works of William Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe playing in new purpose-built theatres, and early English exploration and colonisation with such folk heroes as Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh. She had built a formidable reputation. As Pope Sixtus V commented, she is only a woman, only a mistress of half an island, yet she makes herself feared by Spain France, the Empire, by all. She was astute and wise to build a loyal contingent of advisers who would protect her crown. However, her reign saw increased executions of religious dissenters, crime, 
and homelessness. It saw rising Puritanism and a discontented Parliament. Yet her 45 years on the English throne left a legacy of confidence and national pride, which would endure for centuries. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for our first steward, James I. If you have any questions, as always, you can email in at thekingsandqueenspodcast at gmail.com and you can follow me on Twitter at kingsqueenspod and you can now follow me on Instagram at kingsqueenspodcast. See you next time. <laughs>